Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hey, my darlings. You find me on a very wet and windy Halloween morning. So it's October 31st. It's nearly 10 o'clock in the morning. I have been up for hours, but I'll get to that in a minute. But I'm looking out over International Spooky Day and uh, it's I'm in London and it's raining and it's windy. And it doesn't. I suppose it does look a bit foreboding, but really more in a kind of, I don't really want to go trick-or-treating in that kind of a way. And I've got a mixture of trick-or-treaters, some more enthusiastic than others. I think they would all be very enthusiastic if all the costumes had arrived that were ordered. I'm usually completely cool with making stuff. And we've also got a, a sack full of old Halloween costumes. But, and I don't know if this has happened in your house, but my children's Halloween inspiration has uh, taken a new turn because we have several children who wanted to be Squid Game characters. So even my five-year-old wanted to be from Squid Game. When I first asked him what he wanted to be for Halloween, he said the robot girl from Red Light, Green Light, which I actually thought was genius. And if you've seen the program, you'll know what I'm talking about. But then he quickly changed it to he wanted to be a guard. Uh, But his suit and Ray, who wanted to be one of the Squid Game participants, one of the players, I believe he wanted to be number 457. Um, 
his outfit hasn't turned up either. So I've got two kids without their costumes. So they are going to be ghouls and goblins and vampires and all the usual stuff. But yeah, a little bit of Halloween tears this morning because the costumes aren't here. And if you haven't seen Squid Game, which I suspect you probably have because I feel like everybody's seen it. But if you haven't, maybe you still know a little bit about the show. And it's a Korean show that has been number one in Netflix, both sides of the Atlantic. It's absolutely huge. And it is not for children at all. And I want to reassure you that all three of my youngest have not seen Squid Game. But I think a lot of it has just trickled down to kids anyway. And because the show features the characters playing childhood games, uh, even in the playground, they're playing red light, green light, which I guess in the UK we would call grandmother's footsteps. Or what's the time, Mr. Wolf? That's kind of what we grew up with, isn't it? Anyway, so I've got yeah, some reluctant vampires. They wanted to be Squid Game people. But hey-ho, that's what happened this year. And our house is not spooky at all because we've been away. We only got back yesterday. Been away for the whole week of half term, which we don't normally do this October break, actually. But I think we had such a... Well, we had a very short summer holiday, less than a week. So we thought, well, let's add a bit on. And I've come home from a few days away absolutely exhausted. Uh, I've got some children that squabbled a lot. That was a bit tiring. We also had some really fun times, of course. It was mostly great. But yeah, a little bit of sibling fighting going on. And we also had my two-year-old, Mickey, who's adorable and really lovely. But he seems to sort of want to kill me by using the slow method of sleep deprivation. So he's just not letting me sleep through the night at the moment. And it is, wow, so draining. So even though it's 10 o'clock now, I've actually been up since about half four, having gone to bed at midnight, which I don't recommend, guys. I feel like four and a half hours sleep is not long enough. I just don't feel like I'm really super peppy. But I'll get in there. I'll get in that mood. I'll be fine. The day will happen and it's only Sunday. No pressure on today, really. Anything I needed to do and had to do and wanted to do was speak to you. So there you go. That's all happening. And I've managed to find a little quiet corner of the house to do it. Um, what else is happening? Actually, you know what? We had a sad thing the other day. I'm sitting on the chair where my oldest cat, Kaniki, would normally be. But very sadly, we had to put him down last week. Our ty- the new boy in town, Titus, who's five, our cat, he's looking at me thinking, is that what happened to Kaniki? I'm sorry, Titus. Yeah. We took him to the vet and he didn't come home. He was very old. He was not very well. He was very doddery. I was worried about him getting run over. But still, it really was very, very sad taking him to the vet and, and you know, going through with all that. I'm sure any of you have been to the vet with a, a loved family pet will understand. It's it's not easy, especially when, as I was putting Kaniki in his cat basket and getting the kids to say goodbye, one of my children said, Mummy, why are you killing Kaniki? I didn't kill him. We just decided to end his life more happily than it might have done if we'd left him. And he did have a very happy life. And 17 is a good age for a cat, isn't it? But I do miss him. He was a lovely cat. Very lovely cat. Anyway, on to much, much more happy things with our guest this week, which is a fantastic woman called Kate Robinson, who I really like. And she is someone I got in touch with because her dad was a chap called Sir Ken Robinson. And if his name sounds familiar, it might be because you've watched some of his TED Talks. He's done three, and he's also written in educational manuals and became Sir Ken Robinson for his contribution to education in the arts in the UK. But 
most notably, he did a TED talk called Do Schools Kill Creativity? It's just under 20 minutes long and it's absolutely brilliant. It's the most watched TED talk of all time. I just had a check on the TED talk website and it's had over 71 million views. And I don't know how many it's got on YouTube, but it's the most watched TED talk and it is brilliant. He's he's funny and smart and concise and articulate and really bang on the nose of what I think resonates with me so passionately about how the education system in this country should be just a bit more broad when it comes to how kids are educated and also the value of the arts. You know, I've spoken to you about this before. I speak to my guests about it sometimes. It's very, very close to my heart. And I think, you know, it actually came to my attention through one of my kids' teachers who said, you have to watch this TED Talk. And as I watched it, and I've seen it more than once now, but I felt that thing, that feeling you get where you feel almost quite emotional, thinking about all those kids out there who aren't lucky enough to have a family that rallies around them and maybe don't come from a creative household and just don't really understand the significance and the value of their creative leaning. Not only that, kids are instinctively creative. Look how little ones want to get, you know, the paints out and they want to dance and they want to act. And it's so good on so many levels, no matter what you do for a day job. But the higher up the education system we go, the more and more that is devalued in terms of its place on the curriculum. Anyway, I will get into this much more articulately and much more at length with Kate. Apologies for the long and rambling intro, but I uh, I missed you actually. And I think having a conversation with you when I've been mainly uh, delegating with Richard about looking after the kids and a week away, and you know what it's like. It's just exhausting and it's like best of times and also most intense. And I hope any of you out there with young families would agree with me and don't think I'm being evil for saying so. I do love them, but I also would really like uh, a 12-hour sleep and a quiet space to just maybe have a day to myself, actually, just just catching up on some TV shows. I did learn one thing on this this summer, uh, this half-term break, though. I didn't take a book. I'm normally a very optimistic person with a book, and this time I thought, there's no point. And so, yes, there was one bit of hand luggage lighter from that. Oh, that's another thing we did. When we got to Stansted, managed to leave all of... We, basically, we travelled hand luggage only, which I'm quite proud about, when it's a whole you know family of six. Our eldest didn't come. He stayed behind and had a party with his mates. But we left two of those bits of hand luggage at Stansted, which meant that my 12-year-old, my 9-year-old, landed with no clothes, nothing, except for what they're wearing on their backs. That's a really uh, brilliant way to start a family trip. Recommended. See you on the other side. But we first met, oh, a few months back now, didn't we? When um, So basically the sort of trajectory from my point of view is that I had watched your dad's TED Talk. Yeah. And for anyone, I think, is it still the most watched it TED is. Talk? Which yeah. is pretty phenomenal. It is. It has been since it came out in 2006. So that's, what, 17 years? Um, it was one of the first ones they put online. So they, they didn't put them online originally. And so this was one of the first fives they'd put on. Mm-hmm. I remember when my mum watched it for the first time, and Dad was like, what do you think? And her only feedback was, I wish you'd worn a different shirt. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the most watched still, 17 years later. It's amazing. Which is phenomenal. And yeah. so I watched it and I was immediately like, this guy's incredible. His message is strong and clear and smart and inclusive and wise. And I thought, how can I 
get involved here. Mm -hmm. And then I looked your dad up and I saw that very sadly he died last year. He did, yeah. Um, a month after I lost my stepdad, as yeah. it happened. So I, 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 I'm really sorry. And I know a little bit of what that feels like in the last 12 months or so, yeah. longer now. Um, and also I then found you. And I was like, because you're basically continuing on from where your dad left I off. I am. Yeah, we worked. Um, so my husband and I worked with my dad for, well, I worked with him sort of, I left school at 16 and kind of worked alongside him. Um, but we formally started working with him about 2015, 2016. Um, and when he, when we found out he was passing away, we didn't have long, we had two and a half weeks. And um, I promised him I'd continue his work. So I, I am. Um, two and a half weeks. Two and a half I'm weeks. So sorry. Yeah, that's it was very nothing. quick. No. Um, so that's from his diagnosis. And he was sick before, but his he was supposed to get better. So it went from you'll be fine to actually you won't to two and a half weeks. Um, but in that two and a half weeks, my husband and I got married, and my dad got to be there. Uh, it was the last time he left the house, and it was an incredible lesson that you can feel happy even when your heart is completely breaking, which. Um, I wish I'd learned that lesson a different way, don't get me wrong, but it's an amazing lesson to learn that you can feel these two. Yeah. Um, actually, the only other time I felt two feelings like that is motherhood. That feeling that, you know, that um, that feeling it's called ambivalence, that you can feel two exactly opposing emotions at the same time, like you love your children, but you also want your old life back hmm. at the same time when you've got a newborn. Um, yeah, yeah, so two and a half weeks. That's actually a really interesting... You know what, I think you've very sort of um, succinctly put quite a complicated... Um, time and probably the kernel of why I wanted to do these conversations in the first yeah. place really because as you say yes you can feel you know you might have always wanted to be a mum and yeah. think this is great and as you say love your baby but also it's you're suddenly thrown into this new bit and it's yeah. quite it is quite discombobulating oh, because you can swing between all these things all yeah. the time <laughs> yeah exactly and you know you never want this child out of your sight because you love them so much but you also really just want five minutes to yourself yeah it's um nothing and I, I wanted to be a mother my whole life but nothing prepared me for that first year I think um the feeling yeah two things at exactly the same time um but I and, and no you don't talk about it no one talks about it and there is a word ambivalence which in anthropological terms directed to motherhood because we kind of think of ambivalent as being you know you could take it or leave it mm. um but in anthropological terms to do with motherhood it literally means feeling two opposing feelings at the exact same time mm -hmm. which, I actually didn't realise that because yeah. Yeah, to me I suppose I've always thought ambivalence as you say is a sort of like yeah. sort of like a yeah. sister of apathy really exactly um, so yeah, not, it's, not hugely emotional but the ambivalence yeah. that you'd feel in that circumstance yeah. is actually incredibly emotional I suppose it makes sense doesn't it because even the kind of ambivalence as we think of it is you could take it or leave it so it's sort of yeah but it's not having a strong feeling is it whereas no. certainly in the ambivalence of motherhood it's both feelings are very strong. Every feeling's very strong. Yeah. Um, but there was a similar thing I actually found when dad passed away, it reminded me of childbirth as well in a totally different... The, the, it's just the two ends of the life spectrum are interesting because you're waiting for somebody else to make a big transition that'll change your life forever and you have no control over it. Mm. Um, you're feeling all these different emotions that are completely out of your control. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's true. And I don't know, I suppose for everybody as well, how... How that settles and when you feel you can talk about it in a more past tense is, yeah. is very bespoke. That's true. Yeah. Um, and probably, like a lot of things, big life events, not actually wholly faithful to chronology. You no. can sometimes feel much more on top of things and then two seconds later I feel like, actually, no, yeah. I haven't got as good a handle on these things as I thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose your ability to, to feel both those things with your dad um, is probably testament to however your relationship had been your whole life yeah because it's extraordinary 
how every whatever's woven into the thread of the relationship you have with your nearest and dearest and obviously sometimes these things are hugely complicated things that's when it's really thrown into sharp relief mm -hmm. when you're going through those things and actually if you could have this two and a half weeks where it sounded like you managed to have this obviously getting married yeah. massively so that wasn't even something you we were no you we knew you were going to one day but we were engaged okay um, yeah, my husband was joking for a while that it was a, all a big elaborate plan just to get him to commit, but we um, it was not. We had a date in the diary for the 19th of September and then the pandemic, so we moved it and then um, ended up getting married on the 15th of August, so six days before he died. Wow. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I suppose it was a marriage rather than a wedding, but he got to be there and he got to give me away and he made a speech. What do you mean a marriage rather than, you mean it was... It was, like a, it, it was just the ceremony because mm. um, the pandemic and there were 15 people in masks so it was oh, yes. you know it wasn't the big white wedding I think that we'd planned um, but he was there and that's all you can ask for mm. you know I, I, I knew that if we didn't do it then then I'd never do it because how could you I just couldn't have done it without him yeah. being there my whole life I'd always planned when I got married that dad would give me away and we'd dance to this song and it was, you know because I didn't know who I was going to marry <laughs> um he was kind of the one staple in all of my plans going through it so he was the he got to be there uh which yeah made it made it very special yeah it does and yeah. I'm wondering if you know there's something in you that was already quite good at sort of reacting to the world you found yourself in rather than because I think you know you can get very hard and faster plans but being able to actually move with mm. reality to where you found yourself that might be yeah. a, like a little tool you had in yourself already I hope so it's a good tool if it is it is a good tool and <laughs> yeah. actually maybe motherhood as well as you've yeah. sort of drawn that parallel there's a lot about it I think where you've got to go with the flow a little bit because even when you really want to be a mum you don't know who that person's going no, to be no exactly <laughs> exactly and I found I don't know if you found this because you've got five mm. but and I so imagine it's different for every single one but I thought when I thought about having kids um you sort of think there's an extension of you mm. and my daughter Adeline could not be you know she's a hundred percent her own person mm. um and so yeah it's um you're right there they are a hundred percent their own people I've totally forgotten what led us up to that bit of the conversation well, no, I'm just saying that you can you can really want to be a mum but then when they yeah. come along you think oh, oh you don't you. know who you don't know who you're gonna <laughs> parent exactly yeah, that's yeah. right yeah um and it's funny watching them figure it out like the you can't almost at this age because my daughter's three you can't get too attached to any particular version of her mm. which must be different with older kids you know that you kind of see more of who they are kind of to yeah, themselves that's very true actually and I do think the kernel of who they are when you look back has sort of been there Always from the been beginning yeah. yeah and it's quite funny yeah. because you think oh actually there's the, the, the sort of like the line like joining it all yeah. but it's only really a reflection when they're that little that you can see oh yeah you were always like this yeah like that, that was always meant to be yeah 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 um, so when you had Adeline, mm -hmm. um, were you already working with your dad then? Yes, yeah. And is that how you met your husband then? I met him through work, not through dad, but I used to run a Finnish education project called 100, which looked at, um, it was for Finland's centenary celebrations, uh, which I think was 2017. And I used, I used to know that by heart because it was, you know, my kind of elevator pitch and it always makes me laugh that I can't remember exactly when it was now. But um, it was my first job with it was to interview 100 education thought leaders around the world on the future of education which is amazing got to mm. travel and speak to people about it uh, so the first thing I did was went to Singapore and to an event called BET that my husband ran 
Okay. So we met in the hallway in Singapore on my sort of second day on the job. Ah. Um, and then... This might yeah. have been then the clip I saw of you where you were talking at, I think it was called... Bet that was Bet UK. Yeah, yes. okay. Where I came out with the phrase Bet Babies. I don't yes, know if yes. Bet Babies, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, really wished I hadn't shortly afterwards. No, I baby um, ideas. Well, I thought it was a great, yeah. <laughs> I love that about events that you... Um, you know, the organisers have no idea what's come out of just sort of having certain people in the same yeah. room together. But yeah, Bet Babies... Well, I guess as well, that ties into something your dad spoke about a lot in that TED talk about the power of collaboration. Yeah. And how at school we're taught that if you see what your schoolmates are up to yeah. when they're working, that's cheating and that's yeah. a bad thing. But actually, when you get into the adult world, that's collaboration. collaboration is key component. Yeah. And so for anyone that hasn't seen the TED talk, and obviously I will be encouraging everybody to watch it if they haven't, because <laughs> I've actually watched it twice, you know, just in the last little, little while. Have you? Yeah, I that's think great. it's brilliant. And it's... Your dad has a, you know, there's lots of humour in there, but he's got a few, not only does he speak a lot of wisdom, a lot, there's a lot of stuff, I don't know about you, but it always makes me, actually, of course it makes you emotional, but I, <laughs> I get emotional more in the sort of sense of, yeah. I think about, it makes you think about your own education, it makes you think about your kids' education, it makes you think about all those children yeah. who don't go home to a family that says, let's talk about your school day and, yep. hey, we can, you know, give you, I don't know, drama workshops in the summer holidays or, you know, Let's let's nurture you through the school process, and then we can really let you out into the big wide world, and then you can you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so I think your dad obviously had such a generosity about him that he just wanted people to feel engaged about yeah. making it better for every kid because his own upbringing was stark different to the sort of things he ends up talking about. Yeah, it was. So he's one of seven. He's one of seven, um, and his a very working class family up in Liverpool. His dad worked in the docks. And his dad was paraplegic. He had a docking ac an accident on the docks that left him completely paralysed for 19 years. And dad got polio when he was four. So he was, and he was the, this, I love this bit, he was the only one of seven, in a house of nine people, that wouldn't have been nine at that time because the two youngers wouldn't have been born, but, um, so a house of seven people. Mm. He was the only person who got polio, which is amazing because it was, mm. you know, like COVID, it was so um, transmissible. But they think that he got it because he had a speech impediment and he went to a speech therapist. Oh. And they thought that he got it at the speech therapist. Um, but it's just this amazing trajectory that he couldn't speak, so he went to a speech therapist, yeah. got polio, and then ended up speaking to millions. It's just an incredible... You know, no one no one would have thought it. No, um, well, and um, no, that's incredible. And I yeah. didn't realise that about the speech impediment. And so that's obviously like one hurdle as well. Yeah. But plus... As a result of the polio, he ended up being sent to a special school. He did, yeah. So the fact that he ended up talking in this really inclusive yeah. global sense about education when actually he hadn't necessarily even gone to like the just the local... He did, uh, he passed the 11 plus and then he went on to, um, to the local, I suppose, grammar school. Um, but he got... Oh, it's a heartbreaking story. He was so desperate to go. So a man called Charles Stafford recognised, sort of went to visit the school that he was at, the first one, and took a liking to him and took a shining to him and sort of encouraged him with the 11 plus and he passed it and he went on to a grammar school but to get to the grammar school he had to take something like two buses and climb to the top of the stairs to where his classroom was and he wore right up until he died he wore an old caliper which um you know like Forrest Gump mm. like a prop but it looked exactly the same proper weighed like 10 pounds metal and leather and everything he's wore that his whole life whole life oh wow um and he yeah so he carried around this extra weight everywhere he went and but he'd get home and he'd be bleeding from the calipers you know chafing on his legs and his brother caught him he's like don't tell mum don't tell mum um because when he, she did find out she took him you know they he, he couldn't keep going to the school because it was just detrimental to his health and he was devastated about it but mm. he always said that because 
hey, like my family's a big football family. They grew up by Everton Football Stadium and two of my uncles played for Everton professionally. Um, and dad was sort of touted to be the big footballer in the family and then he got polio. And because of the polio, he reckons that's kind of the, that's what set him on course mm. because his dad said, you know, you can't work on the docks, you can't be a footballer, you can't do the physical jobs everybody else is going to do. Mm. You have to focus on your education and your mind. Um, and, and he did. And the kind of great irony is he, he himself was actually very academic, mm. you know, and so his point isn't that the whole, you know, that no one is or that it doesn't, it's yeah. just that not everybody is, which, yeah. which is absolutely true. Yeah, and different ways of celebrating and encouraging intelligence and original yeah. thoughts and creativity. Exactly. Yeah. So that everybody can get through education equipped with the ability to know where their strengths yeah. lie and actually have them celebrated rather exactly. than thinking, I feel stupid because I didn't, yeah. I wasn't very good. I mean, even now, no matter what you end up doing after GCSE, you have to have English and maths. Mm -hmm. Now, some people objectively might say, well, those are really important things. Mm -hmm. And of course they are. Yeah. But if you're very dyslexic or dyscalculic mm. and you find those things really challenging yeah. you've just got to get over that hurdle. you just have to get over it yeah yeah and it's that's really tricky and it's not necessarily an understanding of english language that you're um you know if you basically if you're dyslexic you'll, you'll find a way around it mm -hmm. until you sit those exams and then you're just a bit stuck sometimes yeah um and i, I realized as well when you're we talking that sometimes i've almost talking about your dad in a sort of present tense. And I think it's because when there's so much audio and visual of someone, I mean, I've mentioned one TED Talk, but he actually did three, three I think. Yeah. And, and lots and lots of speech. I mean, if you go online, you can find reams yeah, and reams. Yeah. And I did wonder what that's like for you because when you lose someone, quite often you haven't got any mm -hmm. sound of them. It's their voice is often right, yeah. the thing that's, that's missing. And I wondered how, how it is to still have him sound so alive in it's, his clips. That's a great question, firstly, but the um, on one hand, I feel very lucky because we have all these clips and we have these videos. And on the other hand, we used to joke that because, um, you know, he wasn't he was incredibly authentic. So it was always the same, you know, whether he was on stage or whether he was at the breakfast table. But we, he always used to joke that he'd go upstairs and he'd come down and say, Snipe Matthew, I'm going to be Sir Ken Robinson, <laughs> um, like stars in your eyes. And he'd come down in a suit with the Armani and, and get ready to go out. And that's the version we've got the videos of. Um, but someone put together a... Um, a tribute to him and they'd kept in some of the b-roll of him kind of just chatting to people before the thing and that's what set me off completely because oh. I was like I actually I don't have much of him you know yeah. it's him sort of on stage talking or it's him talking about work and being professional um, and there wasn't a huge difference but there was enough of a difference to kind of think I miss that bit of him the bit that wasn't you know didn't didn't know he was being filmed and was sort of making fun of the camera guy or mm. um, trying to make everybody else in the room feel comfortable but I'm, I'm particularly grateful for my kids you know that they've they'll have yeah They'll, they'll be able to see him and, you know, the impact that he had and not everybody gets that. No, you know, that's very true and it really brings it to life and there's so much humour in there. Yeah. And it sounds actually like maybe he and his siblings were quite high achievers. I mean, if you say two of them ended up playing yeah. professional football um, and obviously in a family where one of your kids finds himself, you know, touted to go in football and mm -hmm. end up getting polio and they go, okay, now it's academia, right, let's yeah. focus on that. That's actually an incredibly sort of resilient family. Oh, yeah. yeah. So when you're growing up, you know, having quite a different childhood, you and your brother, mm -hmm. does it put on a different kind of pressure? Or, I mean, how does that sort of manifest when you're thinking about the, yeah, where you, the sort of roots, I suppose? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this just the other day because I was thinking about how, you know, dad's passed away and I'm carrying on the work and so a lot of the things that we used to do for him we're doing for me now like I've just written a book so we're working on you know book promotion and this picture and that and it's all the things we used to do for him and so there's a kind of um when people said you know he's not gone because you're here which is really lovely 
and I kind of get frustrated that there are things that I don't handle as well as he does. I've got a, a much quicker temper than he does. And it occurred to me the other day, it's because I haven't, first of all, I'm not him, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is the big one. Um, <laughs> that's the first yeah, one. Yeah. Significant ones, <laughs> Absolutely not him. But also, you know, even if I was, even if I have very similar personality traits to him, I didn't go through what he went through. I've, you know, I've never known hardship the way that he knew hardship or um, one of the maxims that he lived by was that he'd never walk away from anything that scared him. And he got that because, you know, being a teenager wearing a leg brace, walking down the street, people used to stare and kind of other kids would laugh and giggle and he taught himself, he's like, I will never turn around and walk the other way or cross the road. I will head up and walk straight past them. And he kept that with everything. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have benefited from that advice and, and, you know, try my best to live by it. But it was everything he developed was really hard earned uh, whereas there's a sense of a lot of the things that I've inherited have been gifted rather than earned um, so there's there's definite differences between it but then I feel very lucky to have grown up watching him you yeah. know the benefit of having learned from him um, but I'm, I'm acutely aware of the difference yeah, but then, as you them. said yourself about your own daughter, yeah. you know, you feel like they're going to be an extension of you and then they're just, no, no, they're they're just not. not. Yeah, um, <laughs> 100% their own people. Exactly. And that's obviously the same thing from you being someone's daughter as yeah. being someone's mother. And sometimes it's not until you're someone's mother that you think a bit more about how your parents might have felt about oh, you yeah. in that way. <laughs> well, and also themselves. I don't know. I, I grew up thinking my parents had everything together. You know, your parents kind of come as a unit and they take care of everything and mm. they must have figured out the mystery of life. And then you have kids and... I hope it's not just me, but you kind of realise you're winging it. 95% yeah. of, you know, you're answering about and no, that's just you. Yes, is it just <laughs> oh, me? Am I, I the only one all, making this up? I've got it all sorted, actually. I'm just, I thought you might. I'm I sorry. thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me making it all up. Yeah, this is the one. Oh, yeah, as I told you already, I tried to take a, my two-year-old to nursery. He doesn't go to nursery today. No. So. <laughs> but it is, it's, it. it's like that story of your mum telling you the condom and grease was a medal. You know, mm. it's it's a lot of thinking on your feet and trying mm. to put in a brave face. You know, definitely trying to parent. I don't know if you, you know, you were grieving around the same time I was Mm. and it's not past tense is it um but you know deeply grieving that first kind of shock and yeah, everything that first bit is yeah, yeah. and trying to be a parent phase. at the same time you know mm. how do you and I remember saying to my my best friend in America I feel like I'm not being a good mum at the moment and she said well no you have to focus on being a daughter which I, I never really she doesn't have kids so she um it's kind of the only advice that you can get from somebody who I guess is from the outside looking in on it. Yeah. Uh, but it's also very valid. You know, I hadn't, I'd forgotten that I was a daughter, I suppose, because you spend so much time thinking about being a mother. Yeah, that's very true. That's actually yeah. very good advice. And I think that's, yeah, also perspective, as you say, from someone yeah. you can say, you need this for you. Plus, um, I think that, you know, your, your daughter, she's still little, so yeah. she won't take away, she won't even think of it that way. You know, if you were, no, I hope not. you know, um, very blue in that yeah. significant way for the first, I don't know, six, eight weeks or whatever, that really intense bit is mm -hmm. when you just sort of wander through life in a bit of a yeah. daze. Um, that's that's a blip, isn't it, for little ones? I hope but, so, yeah. And I think um, for my kids, yeah, we just did lots of talking about it, actually. Mm. And I said, I think for me, the big thing I wanted to pass on to them was actually that it was okay not to feel that sad because yeah. I remember when my grandma died when I was um, 11. I didn't really cry at the time. Mm. And... At the time, I felt like, you know, 11 was really, really grown up and I should have been feeling terrible. And I just, it just didn't really, I mean, I, I loved my grandma, but I just didn't really there, know how to feel it at the well, time. There are also aspects that you develop as you get older, like what forever means yeah. that you don't have at that time, aren't there? You exactly. know, you, don't, you can't quite get, and thankfully, you can't quite get your head around the concept of what somebody being forever gone means. Yeah. And I think um, particularly when they've had an illness like that, I don't know if yeah. you had this, but I used to feel like with John, like when 
when he died, like, oh, okay, that's the cancer, but over now he's going to come back and it's exactly the that other side of the illness. And then that was so a whole weird. other... Even though you know that's ludicrous. It's... No, you're absolutely right. And there was a whole other wave then of grief that kind of came around Christmas time of, or maybe even later, maybe around February, I was saying to my husband, I'm sort of grieving the fact that I get why the sick one had to go. You know, yeah. I understand that he had to die and that, you know, I'm grateful for him that he didn't suffer longer than he did. But it's now the fact that the healthy one's not going to walk in the room. Yeah. Um, I remember we got dad a, a hospital bed that, um, you know, really lovely, it just felt like such a small thing you could do, but w- was to get him a really nice hospital bed for mm. week he stayed home. And I got, we made it and I tucked him up and then walked, my parents lived next door during the pandemic and I walked back home. And I had to sort of just remind myself, you're not tucking him in to get better. You know, you, that's, it's just, a, it's a really odd Oh, it's just bizarre, the whole... Yeah. But it's, and, it, and it's such a part of life as well. It's, it is, and culturally, we're still sort of finding where, where to place it sometimes. Oh, we do a terrible job, particularly, yeah. particularly in sort of non-religious Western culture. Um, and part, part of it, I'm sure, was the pandemic, but we had this two weeks between, you know, him dying and the funeral, and no one could come. Um, but I've got Irish Catholic family on my mother's side, and I went to help my cousin bury her dad in the November before my dad died. Um, you know, he wasn't even sick at that point, but... I remember thinking, God, they've got everything, you know, they they know what they're doing. They've got a wake and people bring prayer cards and then they've got the funeral and then they've got the, mind, the month's mind and all these sort of things that they do. We had nothing. You just mm. sort of, you're trying to figure out what's happened. And I did a talk um, to the IDEC, the International Democratic Education Convention, trips off the tongue, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which is an amazing organization about democrat- the democratic schools movement. But they asked me to do a talk about dad and they sent me the the invitation in the two weeks after he died when I was invincible you know when the you know I didn't feel anything I was just sort of sure I'll take on the world this is fine um and then by the time it rolled around a month later I was not fine Mm. at all and I nearly cancelled and I didn't and I got on the zoom thankfully to 150 people and I just sobbed for 10 minutes I couldn't even bring myself I was I was mortifying but I couldn't bring myself to say you know I was sort of trying and eventually I just stopped I was like I would love to hear from you guys about I guess you know what he meant to you but also your experiences of grief and it turned into this hour of people talking about when they lost their dad and you know someone in um india was saying that they they scatter sesame seeds and watch them drift away as part of the symbol of sort of letting go and Hmm. um someone else said that where she's from i think she's from nigeria that that they howl you know and it was when she found out her dad had died she howled and everyone came running out because they knew what the howl meant and just these Hmm. other kind of cultural things that people do and you make you realize that we it's certainly in a non-religious as said western capacity particularly in a global pandemic um it was nothing you know no, yeah. no one wants to talk about it and it's but you're just aware that it's something we'll have to go through either you know obviously our yeah. own but also someone that we love and you kind of you learn on the job a bit with it yeah and actually it's interesting to think about the howling because I was thinking you're so right about the pandemic that that's what I felt was really strange about the ex- entire experience is that yeah. no one was able to run around the streets going, oh my goodness, this is actually really scary and I'm yeah. just seeing people and what's going on. Everybody's emotions had to be on mute and then when yeah. you aren't out, you just see, you don't you just see, see the, the eyes mask, and no, yeah. no smiles. And it's, I think that lack of expression is really bizarre. It is, and very yeah. counterintuitive for humans, really. Well, um, if there's yeah. a benefit to it, though, um, and I hope this lasts and isn't just sort of a post-pandemic phase, but certainly a lot of the conversations that I've been tuning into have really been about what makes us human at this point. Yeah, you know, because we've true. sort of been robbed of it and um, certainly recognising that we all got through it based a lot to do with the arts. You mm. know, we were watching things on Netflix and listening to music and people were taking up hobbies that they'd never done and sort of we went straight to creative pursuits because we mm. had time to do it. Um, but also, 
yeah, sort of, I guess you're right, because all of the humanity was stripped out of it, but we all found mm. ways to connect and reconnect. And I hope that, I hope that stays. And that, I suppose, also back. completely joins dots to what you've been up to. So yeah. tell us a bit, little bit more about the Seamless book. Seamless segue. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> well done. Well, no, because the creativity is at the heart. No, of it, you're right, it? yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, and yes, professional <laughs> podcasting. Very impressive. <laughs> Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. um yeah so dad dad was writing a book um i think the original deadline was 2017 so he'd been writing this book for a while okay um and it i think partly why it took him so long to do was partly because he was busy but also because it it's intended to be a manifesto of all of his thoughts and it's short and so a distillation is a very wow sort of big task to do um but when we found out he'd asked me to help him write it and then obviously when we found out he was dying he asked me to finish it and so we spent a lot of the last two and a half weeks talking about the book and what would be in it and and everything else um and I've just finished it which is so, amazing which is amazing yeah so it's it's uh, thank you so it'll be out next year in March and um yeah it's a re- it's been a really um it's been a really big journey to do it but it's it's also been I mean very therapeutic in terms of um he started writing it so I finished it as him you know I'm not writing in my own voice I'm writing as okay. him so it's been kind of getting him into my head and me into his head to finish it but it's it's a real distillation and it's short it's 60 pages um of of all of his messages and the the key themes of it you're absolutely right it's about creativity and imagination um and dad's point was that imagination is you know our, our capacities for imagination is what separates us out from the rest of life on earth that other species may imagine 
Um, I'm sure they do, but we, we have the capacity. Then we have creativity, which is the ability to act in our imagination. So dad referred to creativity as applied imagination, that you can spend all day every day being imaginative and nothing would happen. It's you know, a nice way to pass an afternoon, but not productive. Mm. Um, but creativity takes imagination and turns it into something tangible through a medium. And so the book's about um, it, 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 how, how our powers of creativity brought us to a critical pass you know, they've brought things like the arts and these great systems of democracy and, you know, st city structures and everything. But they've also brought wars and um, the dark side of everything as well and the climate crisis. And certainly a lot of these systems that are no longer serving us, if they ever served mm. everybody to begin with, I'm pretty sure they, a lot of them didn't. They were designed mm. for the few, not the masses. Um, but the point of the book is that they're human-made systems and by definition therefore we can change them and we've come to a point where we have to mm. um so we're systematically destroying the earth you know and robbing it of its natural resources and we're also systematically through systems like our education system but not just our education system um robbing ourselves of our own diversity of resources and talents and um we need to get a grip mm. The, the exact wording isn't in the book, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's the general gist of it. And then also, but it, it's it's um, not just the the kind of concept behind it, but also some tangible kind of next steps of how to harness those powers and move forward with it. So this is obviously like there's lots of things that are in the book, and obviously mm -hmm. it's been hard enough to distill um, all your dad's. Um, thoughts about education into this book that's taken four 60 years. pages. Yes, and now I'm trying to get you to do it even <laughs> tighter. Um, but I suppose um, the thing that I find really um, powerful is this idea that the education system as it's set up is is not working. Right. And whilst there will be some people, yep, that definitely benefit, mm -hmm. the vast majority don't. Yeah. And... And you only have to speak to anybody mm -hmm. about their own education or about their kids to be trapped in probably quite a long conversation because yep. it, it goes right to the heart of us, doesn't it? Yeah. School, all of that stuff is so formative. Mm -hmm. And it takes up so much time. It does take up it's so much time. It's between 14,000 and 22,000 hours that the average child spends in education. That's wow. in the formal system. That's not including university. That's Plus it's a like huge third, time commitment. You know, it's like the extra raising hand the extra yeah. parent and it gives you a mirror to yourself of yeah. how you should see yourself and where you feel your strengths and like mm -hmm. you know weaknesses are and where you are in the pecking order yeah. and what's going to be celebrated and you know this is just it's so significant and it's so clearly faulty mm -hmm. so when you're you know and obviously your dad and you have bucket loads of optimism and enthusiasm for how to start yeah. to evolve this and move things forward and you know you're not alone there's lots of things out there that are growing and starting new ways of educating oh, definitely. but the vast majority of sort of state-led mainstream yeah is is not great and certainly from my point of view I feel like my job as a mum is to kind of almost get my kids through it with their morale intact um so that they don't feel like failures at the end of it really yeah um and so um, when you're raising your own child and you're about to start, so your little girl's only just started nursery, so yeah. you're right at the beginning. Very at the beginning. <laughs> so I'm how, just does that, how does it factor into what you are hoping for her? Because the chances of there being big reform, it's gonna, this is going to be incremental, I oh, imagine. Yeah. I, yeah, and it is incremental. As you said, there's, there's already a huge movement underway of people doing things differently. And we're lucky that the school our daughter's in is one of those. Um, 
but it, it's the th I'm probably the opposite of most but it's a thought that's caught that's kept me up at night is had I put her in a system and the night before she went so she's only been in a week um, but the night before she went in I started crying at 5pm <laughs> and I don't think I stopped until I picked her up at 12 the next day what was that all about? It felt, it felt like a few things one it felt like the end of babyhood mm. you know which is a very distinct kind of end of a time period yeah. um, one that at various points in it I've wished was well you know well behind us but now it's over I'm like <laughs> my baby um, but it's also it occurred to me it's the last time that she will be totally untouched by the system so even if we decide to take her out she will always be touched by it she'll be it will have made a mark in some capacity on her and whether mm. it's a great mark or a bad mark you know this last day that we had with her before she went in was the last day of her just exactly as she was without feeling like she had to be anybody else and already mm. last night she was telling me that she was excited to go which is great and she said um, I promise I won't cry and I <laughs> was just on the bedtime story, but I was like, who told you you can't cry? Um, you know, if you're sad, you cry. And if you're happy, you smile. And, you know, if you feel nothing, mm. then don't do either. That's fine too. But because we've, we've found at the school gates, you know, parents saying things like, you know, big boys don't cry. Like, first of all, they're three. Yeah. So big boys, whatever. And categorically, big boys do cry. <laughs> you know, big everybody cries. Little everybody cries. It's, yeah. um, you know, things like that little girl's not crying. And... Um, which is amazing because you're a big boy, but that girl who's the same age as you is a little girl, you know, but she's mm. not crying. Um, and already, you know, a week in, she's sort of feeling like she has to do something because she's overheard people being told a certain way. And you're right, I'll be that mother like you are, sort of trying to keep her morale intact and probably un trying to undo everything that's done. <laughs> I'm probably teacher's worst nightmare. Um, certainly mm. publishing a book on education her first year of school is going to be... She's in for a different journey than I was with it. <laughs> if I was your kid's teacher, I wouldn't want to get the email that says, I need a meeting. Yeah, please, can we speak? Um, and I should say as well, there are lots of teachers, actually, that feel very restricted by the system oh, they're in. A and huge amount. want to teach in a different way and can see yeah. the potential in the kids. So yeah. this is not a kind of blanket thing. No, you no, know, no. There's, I've had some really good relationships come out of my kids' yeah. teachers. For me, it is much more about the system at large. Yeah and how things oh, are and pushed and our teachers it's a weekend but they seem genuinely lovely and as I said we're lucky the school is really lovely but you're right you know I think I also think even on a systemic level no one wakes up I hope no one wakes up in the morning and thinks how can I screw this up for generations of kids today mm. you know teachers so that's, they don't, teachers don't go into it because it's a great paying gig you know or it's they go into it because more often than not it's a vocation mm. um, it also tends to run in families it's something my my mum was a teacher my grandma was a teacher it goes back and back and back so that's how my parents met my dad was running a teaching workshop and mum was a teacher on it she um and she said she was a head over heels in love you know 20 minutes into it but oh, um which, <laughs> yeah um but you but you're right the you know teachers are the, I mean there there are some uh, you know there are some who would be better off I think serving in prisons 100% who possibly have, are not in the right vocation. I've had some of those. Yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, teachers, you know, are, are desperate to do right by children and, to, you know, to leave their positive mark on it. And it's a system, as you say, that is constricting. And there's lots of programs like 100, the one that I told you I used to work with, you know, that offer innovations. Now, now they publish an annual list, 100 innovations that are changing the way we educate already. And they're mm. kind of, um, you know, little ways that you can get through things you mm. know so if there's a bullying problem there's a thing called the buddy chair buddy bench where it's an empty bench designated in the playground for if a kid's sitting on it all the other kids are told you go over and play with that child because you know they're by themselves or mm. um or ways you can get through you know teaching maths through music and they're wonderful but they are um i call them band-aid solutions or plaster ones you know this yeah. is how this is how you get through exam season this is how you rather than the ones that kind of address yeah um but they're essential and, and hundreds got an amazing 
movement and support behind it because teachers are desperate for ways to kind of add a personal touch into the system as it is. And Dad's point often was that there is actually quite a lot of room, wiggle room within the system. You know, there's lots of things that we do that it's not mandated anywhere that we do them. Mm. Um, you know, the way the classroom's set up or um, the day, you know, each lesson being an hour long in between or, or 45 minutes sometimes even. You know, his point was if you if you're in an office environment or a working environment or, you know, you know, you're creating music or writing a book and if a bell rang every 45 minutes and you had to get up, go to a different room and think about something else, <laughs> you'd be crazy by the end of the day. Yeah. You know, but we ask kids to do it. Um, yeah. But it's, again, it's not mandated. So it's just, there's a lot of, this is the way we do things. It's always been done and certainly a lot of, um, you know, I got through it and look at me, I'm fine. So now it's your turn. Yeah, I think that's very true, actually. And I think we have definitely have that with our growing knowledge of... Um, people who learn in different ways there's a lot of like previous generations just yeah. have to sort of buck up get on with it yeah. and um and the fact you know that there's sort of this sort of thing of like if we make it a more supportive environment yeah. that's not really that important because people sometimes just get through things and then they yeah. they deal with it well dad's dad used to say that um the more narrow the definition of ability the wider the definition of disability is and my favorite term at the moment is neurodiversity because because it's not about ability or disability, it's about the different ways that our brain yeah. work, you know. Um, and it's amazing that we're finally getting to the point where neurodiversity is something that's being taken into consideration. Exactly. It's actually um, something some businesses kind of actively yeah. look at making sure they've got a good cross-section of people who think in exactly. lots of different ways because it's so good for... yeah. They, you know, think what they call it, thinking outside the box. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, lateral thinking. sometimes really, really little. Yeah. Um, so, what in what way are you plugged into the future of education? So, who, your book, well, who's mm -hmm. is this? You know, are you part of something that speaks to the government and um, less so the government, um, which is kind of I. It, again, it's kind of following on from Dad's lead with it, but he fell out of love with trying to. He did a big report in the nineties for the commissioned by the Labour government in the UK mm. called All Our Futures, which was a um, a report for creativity and the arts in education I think what is this what led to the knighthood um it's part of it it was partly that and also his, his work in Northern Ireland um but he you know I think he, they swept it under the rug basically and um dad you know always said he thought that maybe they were looking for like a creativity hour and a Friday and something that was easy to implement what they got was this right. massive book that was you know his yeah his had to make systemic change to incorporate it more but the impact it had on the sector was huge you know, across teachers and also um, the cultural sector in the UK in particular. Um, but I think he kind of fell out of love and what, what he found is that you can make great headway with a politician and then they get moved or promoted or go somewhere else, you know, move to a different department mm. and you're back to square one with the next. You know, politicians come and go. And he always said that, um, which I love, that rock and roll wasn't a government-led initiative. You know, revolutions don't wait for legislature, they happen from the ground up. Mm. Um, so that was the grassroots movement. So that, that's, this book speaks a bit to politicians, but it is mostly for, it's for everybody. It's for parents and for teachers, for school leaders, for kids. Because certainly out of everybody, I think the voices we keep down as much as possible in this conversation of the young people. Mm. You know, we, we try very hard not to educate children about their rights. Um, but but the generation that's, that's coming up now, uh, more active, I think, than many before it. Mm. Um, when and so, it, yeah. The book, the book's got a little bit sort of. It certainly in the last chapters, it's got a little bit about if you are this person, if this fits you, then this is how you can make a difference. And if you're an individual who's got nothing to do with education, well, firstly, everybody does because it affects the society that we live in. It affects mm. our businesses. It affects everything. Yeah. Um, but this is how you can also help affect change within it. 
Um, so yes, much more for the people and less for the Okay, that's the good. Government. So there are things that actually you can kind of get involved in to yeah. help add your, yeah. add your name to it. And what we're building voice. at the minute is um, a company website that will have lots more resources because the book, I wanted to be timeless, like a manifesto, so it doesn't mention the pandemic or I didn't want to mention specific organisations just in case, you know, that one day they close or... Um, we're in the era of cancel culture as well, you know, just if just if anything happened yeah, yeah. that would date the book and we'd have to redo it. So, But we'll yeah. have a website that'll be constantly evolving and updated with resources. Because I think um, certainly with with the movement that's already inspired by and behind Dad, you know, the, there's, there's, there's two audiences. There's the people who get it, in which mm. case they don't necessarily read, need to read a book that tells them it again because they get it. And then there's, so they, they want, you know, okay, but how, what do we do now next? And then there's the people who are sort of discovering it for the first time and... Um, we did when the TED Talk had been out for 10 years. We did a campaign called 10 Years On, mm. which is like an apt name. Mm. Um, and then the next year we changed it to 11 Years On and <laughs> 12 Years On. You can see where we yeah, went. Yeah. <laughs> you can see where we went with this one. Um, but it was asking people, the, it was one of the first things we did when we started working with Dad officially, was you know tell, tell us what impact the TED Talk had in your life. Um, and the responses we got were amazing. And the overwhelming theme was that, you know, it told me that it wasn't me that was broken, it was the system. Mm. Um, you know, it wasn't my son or my daughter or my mother or whatever. It, it was the system that wasn't designed for every person in it. Yeah. Uh, one mother wrote, I felt heard even though I hadn't spoken, which uh, made me cry at the time. Because um, that, I mean, that's an incredible gift to give people. And that's why, you know... Yeah, that might be why I felt, feel kind of like this sort of emotional feeling yeah. when I start watching it. It yeah. makes you feel like this sort of bubbly sort feeling of, of like... Validation. How, yeah, yeah, but also how can I get involved? And mm. I mean, do you have in your head a sort of more... Uh, like how a school should be run are there things that you yeah. can you actually sort of envisage it yeah so that's in there as well um the, the book draws parallels between things like rewilding and regenerative agriculture mm. um, because i said the two themes in the book are the environmental crisis and um and the crisis of human resources and our diversity of talents uh, but what i love at the moment about the conversations to do the climate crisis is that you know david attenborough's books and and across the other ones there seems to be this lifeline which is you know we aren't actually just yeah, we, there is still hope. Um, so, is the environmental aspect in education are they yeah. joined because it's sort of holistically just how things well, think? Well, so there are two reasons. One, Dad's favourite thing was holism. This idea that we are all a part of a bigger thing or individual. Um, Holons is a it's an individual thing that operates on its own, but is also part of a bigger thing. And a system is um, a complex system is a series of smaller parts that make a bigger part. Um, so there's definitely an element of that. The other is that they're both human made issues. Um, and he felt that you can draw parallels between how we treat one with the other. So certainly with rewilding and regenerative farming, it's a lot less of trying to mass produce and focus on yield, um, which, you know, these big industrial systems of agriculture in particular did was, you know, they got rid of the diversity in crops and grew all the lettuces together and all the mm. cabbages together and then sprayed them with pesticides to keep the insects off which then mm. they killed off the birds and then that killed off everything else or they grew the animals and these grew the animals <laughs> yeah. raised the animals um in these big indoor factories and you know sprayed them with antibiotics to kind of keep them edible and pump them with things there was a direct relation dad felt with the education systems um people often compare education to an industrial factory and mm. you can see why you know this kind of model of a conveyor belt and you get on it and as a kid and people different teachers are responsible for their little bit of the factory line and at the end there's you know various tests along the way to make sure the product's in keeping with all the others and then you get <laughs> shipped off but dad said and he used that metaphor as well it's you can see why it's caught on but he felt that the actually there's a big difference in industrial farming industrial factories and education and that's 
children aren't inanimate objects. You know, a, a screw or a bicycle doesn't care what happens to it necessarily, but kids mm. do. So mm. he felt um, industrial farming was the right metaphor to use rather than a factory because it's a, it's the mass production of living creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way then we're, or certainly regenerative farming models and rewilding is sort of undoing those practices and bringing back the na- the nature into it. You know, so growing different crops together in close proximity so they support each other mm-hmm. um, and allowing the natural ecosystems to thrive off it to, to be a part of it because then that thrives the rest of it. And, you know, rewilding is when you sort of just set off various parts of land and take a step back. You watch it, but take a step back and let nature do its thing mm-hmm. um, because life always finds a way. So how would that be? I don't quite understand how that would be in a school. Exactly. Yes. Um, so <laughs> in rewilding, you focus on things, the ecosystem, mm-hmm. you know, and nature always, life always finds a way because it's so dependent on the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, in order for a tree to grow, the soil has to be right. Mm-hmm. So dad's thing was you, you, you as a teacher, a great farmer knows that they focus on the con- getting the conditions right. You know, mm-hmm. you don't grow a plant as in you don't stick it in the ground and stick, stitch on the petals and, you know, sprinkle it with pollen. You create the conditions for the plant to grow itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the parallel then with education, that you don't grow a child. You know, you know that as a, as a mother. You um, you don't fill them with information necessarily or kind of stick on different personality traits. You create mm-hmm. the conditions for them to turn into the best versions of themselves that they can be. So he felt great teachers know, the way great farmers know, that in order to help children to flourish and thrive, you focus on creating conditions for them to do it themselves. And the way you do that in a school, and this is a very long-winded answer to your question. No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> um, the way you do that in a school is you create the conditions, so you focus on the ecosystem. You make sure that the teachers are taken care of and that their needs are met. You make sure that the environment is conducive to learning. Um, there's a great initiative called the Le- the Lenometer by St- Professor Stephen Heppel, um, which is this little box that he puts on a table and it reads the light quality and the noise quality the oxygen quality in a room and goes green if it's conducive for learning you know because we don't as he made the point most prisons have got more light than classrooms um so you you make sure the environment is conducive for learning and you you focus on the diversity of talents and give children a range of options for you know the ways in which they learn there's a big thing that personalized learning isn't feasible it's um too expensive and the point is, first of all, that education is personal. There's no getting around it. Is you mm. know, as we said, it's a highly. You talk to somebody about their education. It's a highly personalised system. Um, but secondly, there's no choice because all the, you know, what's more expensive are the kind of alternative education programmes that are designed to get kids back into education. That ironically focus on things like personalised learning and mm. um, are quite often the creative arts and and things like that. Um, so that that's why the environmental thread is through is because he felt that there are, there are strong parallels between the two probably put more succinctly and in less words than I've just given you there no no you explained it really really well <laughs> and my 25,000 words all in one go no but it <laughs> <laughs> speak to someone who's just written a book yeah <laughs> I think no because I can understand that and it turns into a 3D idea and also yeah. sounds very logical and actually while you were talking I was thinking I wonder how usual it is for you know a parent and then their child to be so on the same page with their with their ideas and their thoughts because I know that you've obviously heard your dad say a lot of these things Mm -hmm. but you can tell from how you speak that this is the way you feel too yeah and I mean is is it as a family is this something you all talk about so it's something my parents that's you know they fell fell over they fell in love over it Mm. um and I you know in part I think it's osmosis I grew up 
my bedroom shared a wall with the bathroom and I could always hear them talking while dad was having a shave or, you know, mum was brushing her teeth. They were in there talking about it or over dinner or on car journeys. It was, you know, it was never a nine to five for them. Um, so there's definitely that element of it. But and certainly it's something my brother cares passionately about, but it, the education system sort of suited him better. Like my dad, he's very um, academically intelligent uh, and I never was, you know, so I, I was that kid who I was told I was, you know, I was sort of in, in not so many words, but in, in many different words, was told I was stupid quite early on um, in, in secondary school in particular. You know, I wasn't academic. I failed all the tests. I, I can't sit still. Um, and so my parents made the decision to take me out of school at 16 because we were in America, but they said, you know, if you were in England, you could leave at 16. So what do you want to do? So I did. Um, I think if you gave any 16-year-old that choice, <laughs> say, yeah. it was like, so I took them up on it. Yeah. Um, but we put together, we would have called it unschooling now. So there was a whole list of things I couldn't do, like run away with the circus, get pregnant. Um, well, this is what your parents said to you? Yeah, we made, list. we made a list of the okay. things that I couldn't do. I couldn't spend all day in bed. Um, I had to do something and then a whole list of things I could do. So I did, I, I always say it's a, it's a hugely privileged story. You know, not only privileged because my parents had the means to let me do unpaid internships, um, you know, and sign me up for university courses, but also because they got it, you know, and were supportive. So there's mm. two prongs to that privilege. Um, and through all that, I, I realised I'm not stupid, you know, and um, and if I can help one kid not feel like they're stupid the way I felt like I was stupid, because, you, you know, I still... Um, labels are hard to shake off. Mm. You know, you, you it's like if you get told you're the funny kid at school, you spend your life kind of feeling like you have to make a room laugh. If you mm. get told you're the stupid one, you kind of... I still back out of debates and things because, yeah. you know, I'm like, well, you, you must be smarter than I am. And the fear of saying the wrong thing at school is horrible, Oh, isn't exactly. Yeah. That's re that really stays with you, I yeah. think. I used yeah. to be so nervous. I used to never ask to go to the bathroom in school just because people would look at, you know, if you put your hand up or... Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so no, it, I, I care about it because, you know, I, I was it and I benefited from having parents who understood yeah, that it wasn't me. Yeah, that you had that feeling from school even though you had someone so sort of championing that yeah. voice. Well, he used um, to speak to the faculty every year. Oh, I bet they loved that. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Coming in again. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so how long did you do this unschooling? So we left school, I left school at 16 and um, probably for two years until 18. Um, I did, I studied child psychology at community college then for a bit. And then I got offered an internship in New York teaching at a school called the Blue School, which is the Blue Man Group. Oh, yes. They paint themselves blue and bang on drums yeah. covered in paint. And they started a school inspired by Dad. Oh, wow. In New York, a blue school. So I spent a year there, which was incredible. What's that like then? It's just oh, like a very arty. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it embodies all the things we've been talking about. Is that from 16 or is that from... No, it's from Little. So Adeline, if we're in New York, that's where she'd be. Um, wow. It's, it's there up to through eighth grade. So I think it's not secondary school. Okay. Um, I was getting confused with the grading system. Yeah, exactly. So it's through year nine. Okay. Um, they've got in the young classes they've got something called the wonder room which is like a padded cell essentially with various glow-in-the-dark lights and um like a big soft play room and they just let the little ones go in and just go nuts to burn off the energy before they go and have to sit down which is great that's smart i mean yeah. I, I suppose as well do you think some of the people's hesitancy uh to change the system is because they fear that by encouraging different ways of learning or creative thought mm. they're going to sort of create a kind of army of rebels who just don't actually want to conform with 100%, things. 100%, yeah. Because I suppose the skill is to encourage the creativity but keep the engagement yeah. in being productive with that. Yeah, well, and um, Dad was never for anarchy. He There's a whole point in the book, actually, about, you know, you need, 
a culture is a set of permissions, things that, you know, that's, this is the way we do things around here and you societies depend on them. You know, we mm. need to have laws, we need to have rules. Um, but it's about, as you say, it's about keeping the individuality within yeah. a, a, a set of... It's also about questioning the rules that make sense and the ones that don't and yeah. um, the ones that feel arbitrary or for a different time. Yeah. Um, and we talked about my daughter's uniform and it's really sweet. She looks like Madeline, but... Um, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, she's three and she's dressed like she's in the 1950s. Um, so it's about, yeah, I guess kind of just looking around at the world and, and reassessing. And I think that's true not just of education, but of a lot of the things that we take for granted. Yeah, and I think probably for a lot of parents, we've had our relationship with education really tested because obviously we found ourselves doing what they called homeschooling. Yes, which crisis um, schooling. Yeah, exactly, crisis schooling, emergency education. Yeah, but it was exactly. called homeschooling, which sounds yeah. sort of wholesome and productive and kind of quiet and yeah. actually sounds kind of like a choice to be honest with you well that's because there's a whole movement of homeschooling which is exactly a and choice that, and if you're a homeschool kid you're gonna be uh, able to homeschool they go yes mine too and they go no no i really no, I, really I literally homeschool yeah, yeah but um but you know one thing that came to light really early and i think i was quite lucky that i saw this article by Catelyn moran really early mm. on into the pandemic when i was struggling she was homeschooled wasn't she she was and she spoke about when she was at school she, when she came home, rather, yeah. than, they was like I think I can't remember. Really, I was thinking of something like de-education. It's like a, a basically like a process right. that kids go through when they've come out of the conventional education system yeah. and are then going to be homeschooled, and it lasts for a few months. Makes and it sense. basically is kind of like getting out of that way of thinking, prattling around a bit, getting <laughs> a bit bored, and finding the things that yeah. take you out of boredom, like starting your own projects and this. Yeah, because we're terrified of letting our kids be bored. Yeah, we really are. We've yeah. actually been taught that boredom's a really awful thing and that yeah. at all moments that can't be a thing. Um, I actually think a little bit the same way with food, actually. We've yeah. been encouraged to think, oh, you must never be hungry. Here's a snack to yeah. tide you over to that there. Anyway, that's another whole Yeah, no, you're right. But um, she also said, you know, if you're the sort of parents that slagged off um, a teacher the way school is, chances are your kid is not going to turn to you when you suddenly say, okay, now we're going to do history. <laughs> and they're going to be like, well, you're the same person that was the same when yeah. history teacher's rubbish. So I thought, you know, it's interesting that there's been this thing and I would really hope that actually if there's ever a time for everybody to look a little bit more closely, mm-hmm. that now is a brilliant opportunity, really, yep. because we're all going back into this. And we've all looked under the hood. Yes, we have. Yep. And seen our teachers and everything as people and, you know, yep. just sort of try to hopefully like soften those borders, but also thinking, hang on a minute, what can they actually get out of this? And yep. maybe there's some things, little roots and shoots that grew in lockdown from their kids when they just took their foot off yep. their off the pedal for a little Did bit. Did you see the um, Michael Rosen article about fronted adverbials that came out in the pandemic? I didn't see the whole article, but I follow him on Twitter, yeah. so I've seen him do tweets about it. Yeah, exactly. But why, you know, most parents are sitting here in the pandemic trying to figure out what a fronted adverbial I is. I googled it at least <laughs> twice. <laughs> yeah, at I still least. can't I tell you what it is. Yeah, no, but, but your kids probably can, you know, and then they will forget over mm. time. Um, you're right, we did a, a podcast called Learning From Home at the um, beginning, just before Dad got sick, we did five episodes and then um, he turned yellow which at the time we were joking was just a way to get out of doing the podcast. But, um, but he did five brilliant episodes and talked to mothers and parents, but it just happened to be mothers actually in the first several episodes um, about how they were handling the pandemic all around the world. So a mother in Mexico, one in Utah, um, some over here. And, you know, totally different because what, I mean, you must have had this. This one mother had four children um, of all different ages, like yours are. So, you know, mm. trying to help one with, you know, the you know, sort of SAT prep because of America and another one, you know, who's so little that it couldn't actually read by themselves. So, yeah. you know, you can't just say, here's the computer, do your own, you know, exactly. your own work. You have to stay with yeah, them the whole day. Like us, yeah. yeah, exactly. And dad, dad sort of said, you know, have you 
got them all involved together. You know, do, are you having the older ones help the younger ones and things mm. like that? And she hadn't, it hadn't crossed her mind and she wrote back a little bit afterwards that she tried it and was sort of blown away. And what we found was that actually the families who were not trying to recreate school at home, you know, who weren't, because one of them was like, you know, if I, they're not going to listen to me, I'm their mum, I'm not their teacher. Um, so there's a big, big kind of power struggles happening as well. Um, but the ones who didn't try and replicate the school environment, but kind of either added things on or took things out and said, you know, okay, so you've got to learn about this, but let's go in the garden and see if we can figure it out out there. Had a, an easier time of it um, than the ones, because also everyone else was still working, mm. you know, so it wasn't, the, the thing with homeschooling as a choice, as an actual valid way to educate your children, is it is a choice. So you've, you know, you'd hope in the majority of cases, you've thought through how you're going to balance yourself and if you're still working or if you're not working or if it's you or if it's someone else doing it but we certainly in the lockdowns had parents feeling like they had to be every single role and then mm. you know it was just sort of unthinkable yeah um, um just out of interest as you said you've got like lots of teachers yeah in your in your family so what does your mum think about her, her relationship with teaching um in terms of what what it is that you're you're hoping to shift yeah. I mean when, was she part of quite a conventional school she was but she um she there she loved it but she sort of I think she was a rebel teacher that um, got in trouble a lot with her teacher and she said she had a wonderful head teacher who supported her in hip but she okay. was always turning the classroom into things it wasn't supposed to be and you know pushing the desks against the wall and you know this was she had been teaching what the 80s in mm. um Liverpool you know in a kind of difficult area of Liverpool but she had all the kids acting out things and um it's, it's, it's how her and dad fell in love you know she said her mum was a teacher and sort of instilled in her the values that and then she'd sort of met a kindred spirit yeah. and dad with it because I suppose um, by shifting education forward, we're going to encourage more kids to also want to be teachers because yeah. it's going to look like, wow, I was so inspired and engaged yeah, exactly. by that teacher. Whereas I sort of get the impression sometimes that, you know, I mean, this happens with a lot of jobs, I guess, but you might want to teach for teaching sake, but then you've got such an exacting list yeah. of how, what, what where the do. results lie and yeah. what, you know, needs to be crossed by what point in the term. Yeah. It doesn't look like a great deal of fun, um, no. a lot of teaching. No, it's different in different places. Certainly, that's how it is here. Mm. Um, in places like Finland, which you know gets a lot of positive press around their education system, although I remember the, the Finnish consulate telling me in London a few years ago that that was almost an issue that they had. You know, people think Finland's sort of Narnia that you'll go and all your problems will be solved. They also have one of the highest suicide rates, um, which I think is more to do with the darkness and the weather yeah. than it is anything else. But you know, they um, they value their teachers which shouldn't be such a shocking sentence, no, no. you know, but yeah. the teachers are kind of educated to almost master's level. They're paid properly. They've got freedom and autonomy to, and trust. You know, it's um, the level of micromanagement that happens certainly in the British system and, and across America and other places is, um, you just wouldn't stand in other, yeah, other businesses. You know, you there's just, you wouldn't be. Yeah, well, there is. There. There's also, there's different reasons for one of the things I'm interested in is, is why we educate, you know, the purpose of education. Mm. Because it people have different, reasons for it different countries do you know if you look at Finland and um, Korea and other places there in Canada in particular their their mission statement is you know to help children become well-rounded individuals and citizens and part of a community mm. if you look at the UK and the US their economic reasons to, to develop children to join the, the labor force mm. um, and certainly depending on what the labor force is you you probably do need kids who you know aren't going to question too much and can sit still all day and follow instructions mm. uh, it's just that now the labor force has changed so much anyway that most People don't want that out of mm. their employees. They do want people who can think outside the box and um, and adapt and keep up and and all of that. Funnily enough, I first got the link to 
your dad's TED talk from one of my eldest boy's teachers. Yeah. And she'd, she's his English teacher. And she was really lovely. And she was one of those teachers I think you'll always remember. Mm. And she just said, the arts is being so devalued and it's heartbreaking and you should watch this. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, there are people out yeah. there that have got their heart completely in the right place and but can see the individuals in the classroom oh, and can see where the yeah. kids have been a bit so browbeaten issue... by the experiences they've had and where they're, yeah, where they're teaching them that the value is. And so yeah. that doesn't, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. No, of course not. I think like you said, your job as a mother, you feel, is to keep morale up. You know, yeah. as your kids go through it, I think that's true of teachers. You know, they have a big job to keep their morale up and to keep showing up every day and doing right by the kids despite exactly. the system, not because of the system. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the big point is about changing it so that we thrive because of a system that we've created rather than in spite of it, which is so often exactly. the case. You know, if you, if you look at the people that kind of, you know, textbook have done well out of life, more often than not, it's, it is in spite of their education. It's not because of it. It's so true. Um, and I think you're true. I think very often you get brilliant teachers and there are, you know, hundreds of millions of brilliant teachers, but they're, they're great often in spite of the circumstances they're teaching in, you know, and they're a yeah, breath of fresh yeah. air rather than, um, than because the system is, in, is allowing them to, yeah. to do what they've gotten the job to do in the first place. Yeah. So I don't think anybody least of all teachers wakes up and thinks, how can I ruin a kid's day today? Yeah. And the other thing is there's, a, there's also a responsibility, um, as a teacher, I think, to help your, the children in your class go on to the next stage. You know, we looked at a few different schools for our daughter, and one of them in particular was a really lovely small Montessori school. Um, but the, the, the director of education who had her kids go through it too, she was really candid about it. Um, and she said, you know, we have a great time with them, but they're totally unprepared for what comes next because they haven't learned how to sit in a room and look at the, the board. And mm. it's true, you know, we school is one aspect and if you want your kid to go to university and there's, there's, a, there's a whole other conversation which we won't get into now but about this kind of need for everybody to go to university which I don't think everybody does mm. um, but they need to be able to fit into the, to the university spec of it you know so until everything changes yeah um, it's a lot to ask teachers to change the entire system themselves from within a classroom yeah no it's also fascinating really because the university thing is interesting or at least further education in any yeah. guise because by giving more value to creativity in the arts, that's all very well and good mm -hmm. if not everybody finds their thing. And no. actually with with my kids, because Richard and I were lucky enough as teenagers to discover that music was the thing. I was like, I, yeah. mean, I literally sort of made myself kind of disappear from school in the last few years. <laughs> I just didn't, I could sort of just start to remove myself. I'd never really felt like it was my, my place. Um, you know, it was fine, but I didn't feel like I fit in massively. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of, I was like, oh, there's a whole world out there. Yeah. It was massive relief. And I'd always spoken a lot to Sonny about that. But then I realised halfway through, I don't know, probably the first year or second year of secondary with him, actually I was putting a pressure on him to find his thing. And yeah. actually not every kid has that. Yeah. So it's about sort of giving them this space to breathe, but also time to grow. Because yeah. you mentioned, you know, sort of neurological aspects. And, you know, we now know people are still shifting with their brains till mm -hmm. their, you know, mid-twenties. Mid-twenties, yeah. It's a long time. Um, so it's completely yeah. understandable to find yourself at 22 even just think, still oh, thinking I have no idea yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing with myself. I don't think I realised this is what I wanted to do until I was 25. Um, and I'm certainly doing it more committedly than ever before because Dad passed away and mm. I made him a promise. Um, well, when you say what you do, what, how do you sort of define your, your job? My job. Yeah. It's, it's my least favorite question. People, you know, we've had it all week with mothers at the do? gates being like, "What do you do?" I'm like, eh. <laughs> "There's no succinct way to tell you what I do." Plus, then you get into I'm like the most depressing person to play date because then you get into you know, well, my dad died, and that sort of sets the tone for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> um, 
I I don't know. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That's the thing. There's no job description so for it. It's the first time I stumped you. I have no idea. <laughs> well, the elevator pitches. <laughs> um, well, I suppose you're what? Um, well, Dad was an educationalist and a yes, writer. Continuing that legacy. Continuing that legacy. But then you have to get into what the legacy <laughs> is. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't feel like I've earned my stripes to say I'm an educationist yet. I can say I'm a writer now that, you know, once the book's out in March. Um, I, you know, I wanted to start, I may, I may yet do it, although it's very similar to this, but I wanted to start a, um, a blog or something, I suppose podcasts are the new blogs, blogs aren't they, but about, called Writer, Speaker, Mother, because that was my Twitter bio for ages, even though oh, okay. only, only one of them was technically true, <laughs> which was Mother. Like, I'm a Robinson, that's Yeah, I'm a I Robinson. <laughs> um, but I wanted to do one about this sort of process of how going back to work and the kind of the mother identity, the kind of loss of figuring out who you are. And because you said, you know, your brain doesn't set until you're sort of in your mid-20s and then you have a baby, if you have a baby. And your brain tends to mush again for, they say it's another two and a half years, isn't it, before your brain comes fully back. And mm. most people have to go back to work after three or six months. Yeah. Um, and this kind of parallel role between what you do and what you don't, which is why when people ask me at the school gates, what do you do? I'm like, I am not thinking about it right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here with my kid um, or waiting for my kid. And I have no idea how to explain what it is I do in a way that... Because no one really cares either. They sort of want, you know... Yeah, I just want the quick They answer. just want the quick answer. They're making small talk. No one wants to go into the education system standing on the school gates. Yeah, although they probably do. I do feel... Like I think you'd be hard-pushed to find people that aren't haven't got anything to say about I, that's true. education and where they would want change. Um, although I was on day three of nursery... So day three of the very beginning, you know, it's it's not even mandatory that she go. And the only reason she is going is because she begged to go. And you do right by your kid, don't you? And she's the most social creature I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic was so hard on her and she was so desperate. She's got, I've got a stepson who's seven. Um, and so she saw him going off to school, you know, every time we have him. So she was desperate to go. So that's the only reason she's there because I thought it would be doing her such a disservice not to put her in. Although I would happily have never done it. But the... Um, Anyway, the, the, my husband took her in and it was his turn to settle her in. And I stood outside the classroom sort of peering over people's shoulders to make sure she was okay. And this one parent started talking to me about the secondary school his son's going to and because the university options from that one are this one. And I was like, God, I haven't even thought about secondary school. He's like, well, you should go to this one because then she'd go to this oh university. And I was like, it is day three of nursery. Yeah, but people I haven't so... thought about... Dinner tonight, you know. (laughs) There's a lot of fear, though. Oh, there is. And about doing the right thing. And I mean... Because, again, no one wants to screw their kid up. You know, it it comes from such a good... You know, if I do that, then he'll go on to do this, and I know he's probably going to be financially taken care of. And Yeah, it's um, a real eye-opener, though. And it's also about what you grew up with and what the world you know, and particularly... I mean, my sort of similar thing was when I started my first at nursery, Mm. and then I wanted him to... I didn't... I unintentionally sort of put him in. It was a lovely nursery. I really liked the nursery, but I didn't realize it was also very, very zhuzhy. Right. It was in Notting Hill, and I was totally freaked out by 90% of the, <laughs> the mums, and I didn't speak to anybody. I was sort of scuttling in my duffel coat and chucked my kids in and ran out again, and I, I just felt very uh, fish out of water, really. And when I when he was leaving there, I was going to send... I sent him to this local state school, and... Um, I actually had parents come up to me and say, you're really brave to do that, or I wanted to do that, but my husband wouldn't mm-hmm. let me. Um, and that's a ridiculous yeah. way to, I mean, it's literally just going to, I mean, I went to a state school, I was like, well, yeah. it's, I'm lucky enough to have a good state school down the yeah. road, that's what I'm going to do. But they, that was my first introduction to that. Yeah. Thing of just like, but there's a trajectory here. Yeah. And we did look at this little private school around the corner from, which was actually geographically much closer. And uh, the head was getting all these kids to stand up 
there must have been about six or seven. He'd go, you know, um, can you stand up? And, and the mm. little boy would stand up in a blazer and be, yeah, I'm going to go in um, this secondary and then I'm going to study <gasps> English at this university. Oh, my goodness. And it's just, this, and it is a conveyor belt. Yeah. Obviously, we all want to do the best thing for our kid. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to send them to a school, a yeah. fee-paying school, but you think it's the right school. Yeah. But I always say to every parent, it's not better because you pay for it and it's not no. terrible because it's free. Yeah. Look at each school and its own merits. And I do passionately believe that everybody should have access to a good good oh, free 100%. education on their, you know, pretty oh, much on their doorstep. It's, it's what... For everybody. Dad everybody. called it the promise of education. It's what the education system, you know, you shouldn't have to pay for an education. No, I think they're quite reliant, in fact, on the fact that yeah. people some people can and do yeah. well, because it automatically mm. kind of creates this hierarchy that it does. really sticks I mean yeah, it does look at how um, things work out for who goes into positions of power in yeah. government I mean you know they oh, were yeah. that little boy in the blazer once standing oh, up and exactly. saying where they're going to go exactly <laughs> <laughs> certainly where we live the um our daughters at a little private nursery a private school um, and we looked at every single one in the area and actually a lot of the private schools scared me more than the state ones because they're sort of everything that I didn't like about the state ones but with more pressure on because you know you um you're you know you're paying for it so you know yeah, so they should be getting these results yeah. exactly so it's 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 in many sense so what we were looking for was one that can operate just outside the system it's an international baccalaureate school the one that she's going to um but as far as I'm concerned, she's in nursery, and I don't know if she's, you know, yeah. I, I have no idea because as you, you know, and you do, you do write by your kid um, at every stage of their life, and if it, if it's great for her now, and you know, we'll take. And, that, and I, again, I speak from a point of privilege, a of being able to send her to a school that that is fee paying, and b of um, I suppose being willing and in a position to have time to think about, which also, you know, I think a lot of parents don't, you know, they think, okay, you're in school, they will take care of you. I have to think about things like keeping a roof over our head and mm. what we're having for dinner and and keeping our lives ticking along. Um, but we'll we'll see because I, I completely agree. It should you know ideally every school should be yeah um, should be able to deliver a decent education and well, know, yeah happy and happy exactly. Out, really. if, if you have to put your children in education, which you do, um, then then the school you, sh you, sh you should you know you should have be able to have confidence at the school you, you know that you're not going to spend every day kind of trying to remedy the impact the school's had mm. um that the school's doing what's right for your kid well, I mean, um, just to sort of ask you sort of lastly i guess but i wouldn't i can see that there's you know the generation is passing this baton <laughs> on and now you're holding the baton yes of, of, of everything that's you know you're passionate about and that's so needed and obviously your daughter's only three so i won't ask yeah. you about if you're gonna <laughs> pass that down to her but if you're, what do you think you can sort of put in like the metaphorical backpack of your small person when you're putting them through education? If yeah. you do have those feelings about where the where the reservations are, it's what really are the tools question. you can give your kids to kind of give help them. them through it? I think um, a sense of self where possible, um, which my husband's much better at than I am. Um, he was bullied for an entire year. No one spoke to him for an entire year. Oh my um, and he, but That's he went, awful. yeah, he went to an all boys school. So then he went over to the girls' school and made friends with the girls, made friends with the older kids, and taught himself the bass guitar and you know uh. figured out who he was. And now he literally doesn't care what anyone thinks, which I'm <laughs> astounded by because I'm such a people pleaser. That's very um, But if I get, yeah, very jealous of people. Like I know, that. me too, me too. Um, so if I can instill that in her, I think that's a huge one—a sense of self. Because then it doesn't matter what kind of. I mean, no one's going to have an unfaltering sense of self, you know, but if you've got a core of who it is that you are, like you said, mm. and I don't think necessarily just about finding your thing, but finding who it is, you know, what it is that makes you, you. Mm. Um, and then, like we talked about right at the very beginning, adaptability, I think, is the biggest, Yeah, is the biggest skill and kindness. 
Yeah, um, that's all. That's all you want is you want your kid to be the kind one, or at least that's all I want. I want her, you know, to be the the one with the good heart, and I don't care about um, any of the rest of it. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lovely life skills. Thank I you. I really like that. Thanks. Yeah, sense of self, adaptability, and kindness. And kindness. Yeah, sounds like a good person. I hope so. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> See you in yeah, sort of yeah. seventeen years. Exactly. Oh, we've catch already up. got <laughs> yeah, and the teenagers here. I'm getting them all out in the teenager phase, actually. Oh, blimey! I <laughs> don't know if that's foreshadowing or just sort of getting it out the way. But... It's definitely like my two-year-old. Yeah, already he can roll his eyes at me. He can do a kind of <laughs> noise yeah, at me. Exactly. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Mine goes. Oh man, where have you got that? From? I'm just like, oh man. Then you catch yourself saying, you're oh, like, "Oh yeah, it's me." <laughs> it is. We um. I say it. <laughs> Headline started um, hitting. And she she come up and say, you know, I'm going to punch you. And you're like, who punches? What are you watching? Or where mm. have you picked this up that's punching? And then we were driving and I realised we've been playing the yellow car game for so long that when a yellow car comes around, you punch someone in the arm. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know that It's me. Game. No, neither did I. But you, if, if you see a yellow car, you punch someone in the arm. It's, really? Um, anyway, we've been playing this all summer, me and my husband. Okay. And so I was like, who's teaching you how to punch? And then a yellow <laughs> car came by and I punched my husband. I was like, it's me. I've taught you <laughs> about hitting. So now we just shout yellow car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big, it's a lot of looking in the mirror as a parent. Well, I've stopped playing that. I've never even heard of that game. <laughs> it's not worth it. There are so many yellow cars around really? now. <laughs> They're obviously very in trend. <laughs> Can you hear that wind? Can you hear it? It's really howling out there now. I quite like it. I'm still all snuggled up in my sitting room and it's quite nice and cosy. And I hope you enjoyed the chat I had with Kate. I think there's a lot of sense in there, isn't there? And does it make you think of your own school days and the fact that we had to sit down and learn at our desks and all face the front? And I mean, some of it's just, it's just smart thinking, isn't it? And about how we've really based our education system on the industrial age, which is just not where we're at anymore. We're, we're in a whole new world and who knows what our kids will be dealing with or the next generation will be dealing with when it comes to what they'll need to be educated with and about to prepare them for life ahead so yes resonated with me and i will keep you uh up to date with with things you can get behind and ways you can campaign because i know i said to kate we would get some information about that and uh, i still think it's worthwhile so watch this space I'll, I'll find a way to communicate that with you on instagram or in the links for this or something but yes thank you so much for lending me your ears thank you to kate for being such a lovely uh, guest this week. Thank you to Richard for editing this. Thank you to Claire for producing this. Thank you to Ellen May for the beautiful artwork. And as always, mainly big thanks for you for your ears and your time. You know how much I love you. All right, I'll see you in a week. And yeah, we've got three more till the end of this series. And please do keep suggestions coming. Put it in the comment section wherever you've found the podcast or on my Insta or on Twitter or anything because sometimes you guys have suggested someone that I just haven't thought of and I've, it's really introduced me to some brilliant women and made me think about some brilliant guests. So thank you. Please do continue to do that. I really appreciate it. All right. Anyway, have a great week and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.